Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hopefully you're there, but if you're still navigating there, just listen to me. Think about this question. You don't have to answer it out loud. You can just answer it in your own brain. But think about this. Why do couples go on dates? Like, really, what's the point? Like, people that are dating or if you're engaged or married, like, why do people go on dates? And maybe you have an even bigger question. Like, if you're married, why do people go on dates when they're married? It's like, you already locked that up, bro. Like, do you really need to go on dates anymore? But, like, like married people that you talk to, I don't know that you talk to very many married people. But, like, if you've ever heard married people say, like, oh, yeah, this night is our date night. And you're like, why do you, like, what? Why do people go on dates? Maybe it's because they're just like, you know, we didn't have anything better to do, so, you know, we did this. Well, that's not very romantic, so you should choose other reasons. Well, what it, maybe, maybe it's just because, well, I just feel obligated, like, you know, you're here and I'm here and, you know, we could, you know, so we're going to go on a date because I just feel obligated to do so. Again, not the best reason and not really the reason. So if you're really thinking about why do people, and here's what I mean, people that are trying to do their relationship rightly, why do they go on dates? Here's, a, here's the reason. Because they know an intentional time spent together only leads to further love for one another. Intentional time spent together only leads to further love for one another. So my wife and I go on dates still. Is it because we don't love each other? No, we love each other. But the more intentional time we spend together, the more love we have for one another. God willing, you will date one day. Some of you are like, yes, Jesus, let it be. Amen. <clears throat> And you will go on a date, and you'll go on multiple dates, and you won't do that just because of obligation. If you do, don't date. That's weird. But you will go on dates because intentional time spent together leads to further love for one another. That's how relationships work. You willingly add things in, put things in place in order to strengthen the love, build the love that you have for one another. On the other side of that in relationships, you also willingly take things out of that relationship, remove them the way, the, the way that you would say things to one another, the certain words that you might say, because, because they don't promote love in the relationship. They actually hinder it from happening. So you stop doing those things. That's how relationships work. You would put in things that build up love in the relationship, and you would take away things that actually hinder love from happening in the relationship. That's how relationships work. Now, why do I tell you that? Because your relationship with God is no different. Your relationship with God, which ought to be one of love, will require you to put things in place to strengthen that love, to increase that love in you. And in the same way, there are things that if you don't take them out of your life and away from what you're doing, it will hinder your love for God from growing. It might even just make it so low that your relationship with God seems flat. If you can think about it like a fire, for many of you, you would describe your relationship with God as boring or uh, lame or flat. Maybe you're just a bit apathetic. And you got a little bit of coals on the fire, but really no flame. Like you're not, it's not really not really moving, not really growing, and you're like, I don't really know what to do. And much like a fire, you need to do things to kindle that flame. You need to put fuel on the fire so the fire grows. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be in this series called Fight. Because if we're honest, 
in relationships, including our relationship with God, putting things in that are helpful to our relationships and taking them out will require a fight. It will not always be easy. We'll have to fight for it. So we will learn how to fight against those things that are enemies to that love. And we will also learn how to fight for things that are promoting and growing our love for God. And we will see that as we look at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'll read 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. In glory. So Paul, in these four verses, does what I'm just calling uh, a summary of the Christian life. He summarizes in four verses really what the, what the Christian life ought to look like, really a what, a why, and a, a how. He'll, he'll spell that out in the rest of chapter 3. But in these first four verses, he at least in the first two gives us the what. What, what should we be doing as Christians, right? You are a follower of Christ. Okay, what, what ought we to be doing? We have relationship. We're not doing to get relationship. But what should we be doing in that relationship to increase our love for God, to set ourselves up for the love of God in us to only grow, to increase, to get more and more? Paul tells us in verse 1. Look back at verse 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, assuming that you're a follower of Jesus, that you would know that Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life that you could not, died the death that you deserved, and rose from the dead so that he was the way to God. He's assuming that you have placed your faith in that reality because there's no other way to God. So he says in verse 1, if you then have been raised with Christ, what should we do then, Paul? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The first what that Paul gives us is seek the things that are above. What does he mean? Pursue Christ-like things. Direct your life toward Christ-like things. Face Christ-like things. Point yourself in direction toward Christ-like things. Pursue them. Run after them. Go toward them. Seek them. Is that what your life looks like? Does your life look like one that seeks the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God? Does your life look like one that pursues the things that Christ is pleased with? This is what a Christ follower does. Seeks the things that are above. That's not the only thing. Here's the second thing we see in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on Earth. So the first thing is seek. The second thing is set your mind on things that are above. So it's not that we're just going after these things, pursuing these things. We are, we are setting our minds on the things that are above. It's like this. It's to engage in the things that honor Jesus in such a way that changes the way we think so that it changes the way that we live. If you would seek the things that are above, it would change the way that you are set your mind on things that are above, it would change the way that you think. And if it changes the way that you think, then it will change the way that you live. Paul would say in Romans 12 that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So not only pursue those things, set your mind on them. Is that what you consistently think about in all things? In the, like, I'm not saying like, oh, I only think about Bible all day long. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying in the way that you do school, in the way that you do sports, in the way that you do relationships, in the way that you live in your house, do you think this is about the glory of God? Or do you think about just how to advance and how to be better and how to be best? Set your mind on the things that are above. Engage in the things that are honoring to Christ such that it transforms the way you think and then transforms the way that you live. That's, those are the things, that's what it looks like to have a, a, a life that is growing in love for God, that we would seek the things that are above and set our mind on things that are above. It's an active pursuit. It's an active pursuit. There are things that we are doing. The next question would be why? Look at verse 3. Why would we want to do this? Paul answers that question. For or because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So if you're hearing verses 1 and 2, seek the things that are above, set your mind on the things that are above. If you're asking, why would I want to do that as a Christ follower? Here's the answer from verses 3 or 4. Three and four, because you have a new identity. You're something different now. That's why you would live differently now. You would seek the things that are above and set your mind on the things that are above because you have a new identity. Look back at verse one. If you then have been raised with Christ, part of your identity as a Christ follower is raised with Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says it like this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are something completely different. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, the old you prior to following Jesus is dead and gone. You are something different now. You have been, verses, verse 1, raised with Christ to be something new. It's part of your identity. Part of your new identity we also see in verse 3. For you have died. Galatians 2.20 says it like this. I, Paul speaking, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have, in Christ's death, I have been crucified with him. Not that I bore his death, he bore his death by himself, but he did it for me. And so as it stands now, I have been crucified with Christ. My old self has died. And the life that I now live, this side of salvation, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life that you now live, Christian, is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved you and loved you in such a way that he gave himself up for you. And your new identity is your old self has died. The, the, the third part of your identity we see in the rest of verse 3. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is Hidden with Christ. That's part of your identity. You are hidden with Christ. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, helps us understand what it means to be hidden with Christ. For our sake, that's for our benefit, He, that's God the Father, He made Him, that's Jesus, God the Father made Jesus to be sin in His death on the cross, who knew no sin because He was perfect. So for our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, 
Here's why. So that in him, in Jesus, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. The right standing that you have before God is based on nothing that you have brought to the table and will forever be based on nothing that you have brought to the table. You stand before God with Jesus' righteousness. That's it. So it is as if when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus as if you are hidden behind him. You are hidden in Christ. You stand before God with Jesus' righteousness, not your own, because you're hidden with Christ. It's part of your identity. And finally, the last piece of our identity that Paul gives us is in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. It says that Christ, who is your life, Christian, it ought to be said of you that Christ is your life, meaning this, that you are so devoted to him, you are so consumed by him. That he has satisfied you in every way. So much so that you might could say, Christ is your life. So what does Paul ask the Christian to do? What does a life look promoting the things of God to stir up love in us? What does that look like? It looks like seeking the things that are above, and it looks like setting our mind on the things that are above. Why? Because we have a brand new identity. We've been raised with Christ. Our old self has died. We're hidden with Christ, and Christ is our life. We have a new identity. So that's the what That's the why, and maybe you're here and you're going, okay, okay, I I get it. Like, uh, that's the life we want to live. Those are the things, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I do that? How do I fight for that? Look at verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The first thing that Paul would say. You need to take out the things that are hindering the love for God in your life. In fact, he goes to the extreme to say, you don't just need to take them out. You need to kill them. You need to put them to death. There are things in your life that you are doing that are not promoting love for God. It's actually hindering your love for God to grow. It's actually stopping it. It's hindering that love from growing. So Paul would say, Put it to death. Kill it. Take it out. Because it's not to your benefit. And for the rest of this sermon, we'll focus on what that looks like and what are the things that we should take out. But it's not just a taking out. He also mentions something in verse 12. Go down to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul says it's not just a taking out and putting to death. It's also a putting on. We need to pursue certain things. Like like people pursue date nights, they put that into their relationship. Why? Because intentional time spent together only promotes love for one another. In the Christian life, there are things that you will take out and there are things that you will put in. The things that you take out are to stop it from hindering the love that you have for God. The things that you put in should only promote love for God. It should make it grow. So then the question for us tonight is, what are the things that we need to put off? What are the things that we need to put to death to take out of our life 
because they're not promoting love for God. Maybe they're just neutral, but it's certainly not promoting love for God. Well, the first thing we see, I think, in verse 5. Look back at verse 5. We'll read it again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So the first thing that you would take out, because it doesn't promote love for God in your life, is unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. What do I mean by that? I mean sin that is in your life that you have become okay with. Sin that is in your life that you have given excuse for why it's okay. Sin that you're not really sorry about. Sin that you're not really fighting against. I do not mean that your love for God can't grow if you have sin in your life. That's not what I mean. If you are willingly fighting against sin in your life, if you are desiring to put it to death, and that's generally seen by you confessing it to God and to someone else and actively fighting against it, if that's what you're doing, that's good and godly. You will bear fruit because of that. But if you are making home with sin, you're driving a wedge between you and God and the relationship will feel flat. You will say things like, I just don't feel God like I used to feel God. I don't hear God like I used to hear God. I just don't, I feel like my relationship with God is so dry and boring. You would do well to say what the psalmist says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You would just ask God, is there sin in me that I'm just holding on to and not repenting of? I'm not saying be perfect, but I'm saying be fighting. Unrepentant sin will hinder love from God growing in your life. But not just unrepentant sin. The second thing that will hinder our affection or love for God from growing is ignorance. Here's what I mean. You would say things like, I don't know how to read the Bible, so I don't read the Bible. I don't really know how to pray, so I just don't. I I just, I'm ignorant to that. I lack knowledge of how to do that in a way that's helpful. So as a result, you don't put those things in, and as a result, your love for God dwindles or it's flat. Because you don't know how to. But check this out. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, so... Dude shows up from Ethiopia, going to Jerusalem, wanted to worship, returning on his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, right? So he's interested in spiritual things at the very least. Verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Notice that the eunuch does not use his ignorance as an excuse to isolate himself and stop engaging with the words of God. He asks for help. Philip asks him, do you know what you're reading? How can I? 
Nobody's showed me. Nobody's taught me. Nobody's helped me. So to you who would say in here, I don't know how to read the Bible in a way that's helpful. Right? I know that you know how to read. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know how to read the Bible and gain something from it. I don't know how to pray in a way that builds intimacy with God. But you're too embarrassed to ask somebody for help. And you'll isolate yourself, and your relationship with God will be flat as a result. And you'll get frustrated. I hope that you would leave here today with enough humility to look at somebody and say, can you help me understand how to read the Bible in a way that's helpful? Can you help me understand how to pray in a way that just breeds intimacy with God? That, that's the most faith-filled question you might be able to ask tonight. Maybe it's not unrepentant sin. Maybe it's not ignorance that are the things that are hindering your affection for God from growing. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe your excuse is, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to spend time in prayer. I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to be in community. I don't have time to worship. I just don't have time to do those things. If that's where you find yourself. With that phrase, you're identifying that your life is full of idols that you need to push down. Because if you refuse to make time for the most important thing in the universe, you're lifting up something above God, and that's the definition of idolatry. So you need to shove it down and make time. Because you prioritize time for what you find to be most important. And if that's the case, you would prioritize time. I'm not saying you got to do it for hours. Use 20 minutes. You spend 20 minutes vegging out on YouTube every day. You could do it. You have time. It's whether or not you have the desire to make time. Maybe it's not unrepentant sin or ignorance or busyness. Maybe it's laziness that's hindering your affections for God from growing. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe you say things like this, I just don't feel like it. Reading the Bible seems boring to me. I just don't care. You need to ask yourself a larger question if that's where you're at. Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God come to live on earth perfectly in my place, die in my place, and get up from the dead? Because God desired a relationship with me, left us the scriptures, has preserved the scriptures for us to hear from God. I'm not saying you've got to be like above the moon, crazy, excited about it all the time, but if you consistently find yourself saying, I just don't care, I just, I don't want to. Either it's because you're ignorant and don't know how to, or you need to ask yourself, do I have a relationship with God to begin with? And if the answer is, I do have a relationship with God, kid, I know that I do, then my challenge to you would be to open the Bible and read it, spend time praying, show up to church, get in a small group, Live in community, worship God in song, 
Because sometimes you need to engage in doing right things and your feelings will follow. But if you're waiting for feelings to show up to do the right things, you will find yourself disappointed. You cannot live by feeling when it comes to relationship with God. If you live riding the wave of feeling, you will find yourself disappointed often in life and in relationship. You need to do the right things and your feelings will follow. A friend of mine says it like this regarding feelings. Feelings are great companions. They're poor guides to life. So if you're basing your relationship with God on, I just don't feel God right now. That doesn't mean that he's distant. It doesn't mean he's less good. It means you're having a different day. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Fifth thing that hinders our love for God from growing. Self-righteousness. You say things like, I just don't need this. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I got this. I'm, life is good. I, I'm handling this great. I don't need to do those things. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. Like, yo, I live in League City. I've got this house. My mom's going to give me this car. I go to this school. I've got these shoes. I go, I'm on this team. I get these grades. I don't need this. And what you're not realizing is you're in desperate need. You're spiritually bankrupt. John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, check this out, for apart from me, you can do nothing. For those of you that find yourself saying, I just don't need this. Attaching yourself from the vine will cause you to shrivel up and die. You can do nothing apart from me. You need this. You need this. But that self-righteousness will hinder your love for God from growing. The last thing that hinders our love for God from growing, the, the, the thing that we put forth to say this is an excuse for why I don't pursue God, because of past hurt or trauma that we've experienced. I'm still hurt from fill in the blank. So I just don't want to talk to God right now. I don't want to listen to God's word. I don't want to go to church to be with those people because I'm so hurt from a relationship. I'm so hurt because my family broke up. I'm still hurt because how she treated me, because how he treated me, because what they said to me. I'm still hurt from that. And so I just don't want to deal with God right now. I just, I just can't. I, I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with God right now because the last person that I went all in on in love, I, they hurt me bad. And so if that's how it's going to go with God, I'd just rather not. I am not going to pursue God at this point. My encouragement to you is this. If you distance yourself from God in light of the hurt that you faced, you're distancing yourself from the very one who provides the healing that you need. I'm not saying your hurt's not legit. It is legit. But if you're going to shake your fist at God because you're hurt, you're shaking your fist at the one who is fixing your hurt. You're shaking your fist at the one who has the healing in the hurt. So don't run from God. Don't get mad at God. Move toward him. Embrace him. Find that he's good. Find that he's kind to you. 
These are things that you will have to fight against in your life. You'll have to constantly be aware, is there unrepentance in my life? Are there things that I don't understand how to do? Am I, am I, am I saying I'm too busy? Am I, am I saying I don't feel like it? Am I self-righteous? Is there hurt in me that's hindering love for God from growing? If you're here and you're saying in your brain, my relationship with God is so flat, like I just describe it as the most boring thing in the world, it probably falls in one of these six categories. So fight against it. Pull it out. If it's sin, drag it into the light by confessing it to God, confessing it to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, and let it die. It's not worth it. And if your pushback in this moment is, okay, so then is Christianity just removing a bunch of stuff? So like, because we're just trying not to sin until we get to heaven? No. Remember verse 12 in Colossians 3? Put on then as God's chosen ones. So it's not just take these things out, take these things out, take these things out, take these things out. Nope. It's do these things. Put these things in your life. Here are good gifts from God that you ought to do because it grows your love for him. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this series talking about that. What are the things that we can put in our life that fuel the fire? How do we fight for the things grow our affection for God. We're going to learn how to fight with certain things and fight for time to do certain things. There's a big fight that you've got to live in, to take things out, to put stuff in. But it's a fight worth having because the result is affection and love for God.